0: And welcome back to the last half hour of Gesundheit with Jacobus. Dr. Robert Cheney is with us talking about lung health. Some of the disorders, as we we mentioned, by changing altitude, uh, Dr. Cheney, it can affect other disorders, people with certain blood disorders, people with heart issues. So it makes sense, heart issue. Talking first of all about the connection between heart and lungs. What is so special about it? Uh, because one thing, I, I'm sorry that I go back to my mom over here, but they say one thing is going to give in first. That will be the heart. Uh, she has a strong heart, so that, that keeps working, but it has to work harder and harder and harder all the time. Is it the heart that can affect the lungs or is it the lungs that affect the heart?
1: Well, it can be either way. Okay. And they're obviously uh, intimately connected. Mm-hmm. Uh, the heart is, of course, pumping blood to the lungs and then bringing that, blood back to the left side of the heart, the big pump side of the heart, which then pumps it to the body. So it's a, it's a cycle that is, is going on. So that if, for instance, somebody develops uh, congestive heart failure, in other words, where the muscle of the heart just isn't working as well, uh, edema can back up, as I talked about earlier, mm-hmm. into the lungs. So mm-hmm. you get pulmonary edema, which is a lung condition, but it's secondary to a heart condition. On the other side of the coin, the two areas that we've alluded to earlier this morning, one, high altitude, and the second, other types of lung diseases, whether it be emphysema, bronchitis, or interstitial fibrosis, that make it more difficult for the right side of the heart to pump blood into the lungs because the pressures are built up within the lungs. In other words, if we all go to high altitude, we will develop some constriction of the blood vessels from the right side of the heart into the lungs, and we'll develop what's called a little bit of pulmonary hypertension. If we come down, that goes away. Uh, It may never be at a high enough uh, degree to hurt one, but pulmonary hypertension, if it progresses, either because of lung disease or living at higher altitudes, uh, can cause failure of the right side of the heart. And the right side is responsible for pumping the blood into the into the lungs. Yes. And that, then when
0: it comes out of the lungs, it goes to the left side. Right. And then the left side pumps it into the rest of the body.
1: Exactly. I see. And so the left side of the uh, the heart, the pressure that it sees is what we measure in the doctor's office, the, the, the blood pressure. Yeah. That's the left-sided blood pressure. Okay. Uh, or from the left side of the heart. On the right side, it's harder to measure. We have to use either putting a catheter in the heart or echocardiography or other techniques, but that's a much lower pressure system. Hmm. So that the right side of the heart is used to much lower pressures. Yes. But if uh, one lives at high altitude for too long or develops some kind of lung process, emphysema or, or pulmonary fibrosis, the right side of the heart starts to fail.
0: So pretty much the first work it's usually the heart, lung, mm-hmm. lung, heart, and then the rest of the body.
1: Yes. Huh. Exactly.
0: What about the brain? How, when is the brain? Is the brain next after the lungs? The brain?
1: But the brain, uh, it, 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 of course, it requires constant blood flow. Mm-hmm. And it is very finely regulated by certain reflexes within the blood vessels that supplies a pretty constant blood flow uh, and, thus, and thus oxygen supply to the brain. If we go to high altitude, yeah. for instance, yeah. uh, there's lower oxygen in the blood whether it's moderate or real high altitude, Mm -hmm. so that the blood flow to the brain regulates itself. In that situation at high altitude, it dilates so that more blood is supplied to the brain. Okay, okay. It's uh, such that a constant supply of oxygen, consistent supply, is there for the brain's nutrition.
0: And that's why some of the rest of the body doesn't get it, doesn't get enough of it, maybe, and then then you get tired?
1: Well, it's interesting that... uh, one of the things that happens at really high altitudes, if we wonder, I mean, talking about, let's say, 15 to 20 or 1,000 feet or higher, that we one of the reasons our exercise performance is limited is that we are using so much work just to breathe mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. those muscles, the diaphragm, the intercostals, require blood flow. And so the blood flow that would otherwise normally go to the legs right. to help you climb or run or do ski or whatever, is stolen from the legs just to supply the the breathing muscles. Yeah. So that's what we call a cardiac steal. Mm-hmm. So the, the lim- part of the limitation to performance at high altitude, particularly really high altitude, is that need to breathe more and the need for the heart to supply more blood flow to okay. those muscles.
0: So uh, so we should talk again about high altitude here, uh, do you sleep more when you're up in a mountain? Do you when when you're more tired at the end of the day because <laughs> some people when they go up to the Mount Everest, for example, they, they start in the middle of the night, right? Or 3 in the yes. morning or something. Yes. But have they been sleeping then for 8 hours or they don't do that? You, you well, sleep more or less when you're up that high. Well, I
1: think uh, in my experience at really high altitudes, including Mount Everest, the, uh, of course it's dark early and you go to your sleeping bag and so forth. And, yeah. uh, the, the quality of sleep is worse. You may be in the sack, so to speak, longer Oh. Uh, of course, some, some mornings you're, you are going to get up at 1 or 2 o'clock to start climbing where it's a little bit safer and it's colder oh. because of snow conditions and so forth. But the quality of the sleep, even if you sleep through the entire night, is, is less. Okay, uh, One can develop what's called periodic breathing, mm-hmm. which is somewhat like sleep apnea, Yeah, yeah, where yeah. you breathe more and breathe less, breathe more and breathe less, and, and that keeps waking you throughout the night. And so... The quality of sleep is not as good at really high altitudes. Hmm. All right. The brain gets, gets, so the
0: heart goes to the lung, lung goes to the heart, heart goes to the brain, and then it goes to the rest of the body as well. What we see, we, we, you just mentioned the word sleep apnea. More and more people, I discover, having sleep apnea right where we live. It has not always to do with weight. Some people are heavier. And because of that, the weight has an effect on the way you sleep. Some people are just normally built. Where do, what does sleep apnea have to do with lung health
1: here? Well, it's very interesting that uh, I've been around long enough, and during my training uh, in the 70s and early 80s, sleep-disordered breathing mm-hmm. uh, was something that was just being described. And uh, there, there are a number of different types of sleep disordered breathing, but uh, the lung is the primary part of of it. In other words, people breathe more, br- they breathe less, uh, they sometimes obstruct their airways and can't breathe so that their oxygen level falls, uh, they suffer from low oxygen during those bouts, and that's a recurrent cycle all night long. We did a lot of uh, sleep research on Mount Everest and also on Denali in Alaska because of the nature of abnormal breathing that people have at high altitude yeah Uh, here as you mentioned earlier dr pasquale and dr person the other pulmonary physician in our group uh, concentrates on the normal sleep disordered breathing of which there's a lot and it's often thought that all of us have some sleep disordered breathing but if it's severe enough it can cause problems with the heart blood pressure lungs and so forth. Is there an explanation for it? Well, I think there's so many different types that it's, it's difficult. It's uh, really a specialty uh, it's, by it's itself. It's a specialty by itself. But one of the more common ones is obstructive sleep apnea. Mm-hmm. And that's where all of the tissues of the upper airway periodically collapse. Uh huh. And, and basically occlude the airway. Mm-hmm. And then the body sort of struggles for a while trying to overcome that, and then the person usually wakes up.
0: Wakes up and doesn't know why.
1: Yeah, and sometimes they don't know they wake up. Uh-huh. But they actually, their brain wakes up and it opens up their airway, they breathe more, get more oxygen, and then they occlude again. Uh-huh. This can occur many times per hour.
0: I uh, talk to people regularly at the store that they have sleep problems, either that they cannot fall asleep or not stay asleep. I've heard good news about people doing some magnesium, take magnesium, and that makes them usually relax the muscles more and they can sleep through the night. But there are people who wake up anyway, and they say they're not thinking about anything any they're not thinking about anything, so it's not that the brain is very active. they just cannot sleep, they wake up, and then they lay over there. That could actually be a sleep apnea then that could be maybe that they woke up because of some respiratory issue, and they don't know about it.
1: That's correct. So they should
0: actually see somebody like yourself or maybe a sleep specialist.
1: Yes, absolutely. I think the important thing is if one is not sleeping well, uh, first to go to their primary care physician, whether it's their family doc or internist, uh, or one of us as well, and describe the symptoms, then it's really an important part of the physician to always take a sleep history. Mm -hmm. when they're doing a history and physical because some people don't know they're having abnormal Mm -hmm. sleep. Mm -hmm. And uh, over time, as I mentioned earlier, uh, sleep disordered breathing can cause a lot of long-term problems, let let alone just being tired all day. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Truck drivers, for instance, with sleep apnea, Uh dozing off is not a good thing. No, not really. And in Seattle, I had a couple of uh, executives from Boeing who were falling asleep during their the executive meetings, and they had sleep <laughs> apnea because they were not getting good night's sleep. Yeah. And it, it can lead to depression, impotence, uh, lethargy, somnolence all day, and some people, sometimes people have these for years. Mm-hmm. And when they get treated, all of a sudden, they're cured. And for the first time in five to 10 years, they've had a good night's sleep. I mean, mm-hmm. I've seen it actually uh, have that effect overnight when mm-hmm. it's treated. People are so thankful. Hmm. We
0: talked in the first hour about teenagers who get asthma and they have the inhalers. I hear that having these inhalers for a long period of time is probably not really beneficial. It, It helps to alleviate some of the symptoms What is your take on on medication that is used for lung conditions? Do you see that it is indeed beneficial in the long run? Do you suggest uh, your patients to maybe try something different? Have you come up with different suggestions? I mentioned drinking water. You said hydration is very important, may actually alleviate some of the symptoms. Have you seen, uh, not have you seen, but are you working with your patients uh, that you make suggestions otherwise?
1: Yes, I think my premise is always to minimize the number of medications in any patient. However, particularly in patients with persistent asthma, uh, they probably need to be on medications. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. as I mentioned also earlier, I think last hour, that patients with persistent, reasonably bad asthma over time, because of the inflammation, because of the scarring, they get remodeling in their airways that may not be reversible. I see. So that use of the uh, standard inhalers uh, with some the inhaled steroids, the inhaled uh, what we call beta agonists that help relax the muscle. Mm-hmm. Over time, probably minimize that remodeling mm-hmm. and end up with you know a better lung ten to twenty years down the the road. I see. Uh, but again, some patients have very mild intermittent asthma, once a month, so they obviously don't need medications every day. That's my my approach. Mm-hmm. Uh, other things are just a, a better lifestyle. Staying away from secondhand smoke. Not smoking, of course, which we talked about earlier, is just yeah. absolutely critical yeah, yeah. Uh, in an asthmatic or a patient with chronic bronchitis. And environmental exposure uh, to try to figure out what are the allergies, what are the things that trigger... Maybe in the workplace. In the wor- you oh, could yeah. be working Occupational asthma is yes, a, a real problem. I saw a lot of that in Seattle. Patients mm-hmm. coming from the workplace. You could take a history that uh, by Friday, they were a mess. Uh, over the weekend, they would get better. Monday, they'd feel much better. And you could track down what it was they were inhaling in the workplace that was leading to this episodic, but uh, recalcitrant asthma. Mm-hmm. So yes, a careful history is uh, taken by the physician. It's very important to have patients, if necessary, change their lifestyle.
0: So when, let's say, it is a a workplace-induced asthma, we talk about asthma in this case, that becomes an outside stressor on the body, and in this case, affecting the lungs. Uh, There is also asthma that is induced because of emotional stresses. Is that right? I mean, how do you deal with that as a doctor?
1: Yes, I mean that that's also a a very important thing. The classic student, correct, with a lot of stress, a high school or college student. from emotional stress from school work or relationships or whatever it may Mm -hmm, be, mm -hmm. we don't know how, but seems to be associated with uh, asthmatic episodes at times. Mm -hmm. So again, trying to work with your patient or work with your child Mm -hmm. to try to figure out what those stressors are to minimize them or to make them deal with them better actually is is part of, I think, therapy and every physician's job. Mm
0: is this uh, this is also becomes still part of internal medicine then when you deal with a with an emotional stress induced uh, or like an anxiety attack induced uh, asthma yes so what is all what is internal medicine is it everything that is inside the body
1: well in in my situation as a specialist a subspecialist uh, of course we practice a lot of internal medicine we have internal medicine training Uh, we have so-called board certification, internal medicine. Then we can go on to the subspecialty training. And as a pulmonologist and a critical care physician, uh, as a subspecialist, we still practice a lot of internal medicine mm-hmm. because patients have other problems. Yeah, they're and they're all I, related. Yeah. It's all related. Mm-hmm. And it's really mm-hmm. important, I think, for us, too, to act in part as a patient's primary care physician, not to take those patients away from their primary care physician if they have one, but to realize that internal medicine is so integral to pulmonary and critical care medicine that we have to practice both. Mm-hmm.
0: But So internal medicine is everything inside the body. So it is different than as a general practitioner who may have to deal with whatever comes his or her way and then send it to somebody like you and say, oh, you better go see a lung specialist about this one. So you are a specialist in lungs, but it is considered internal ma- still part of internal medicine. Yes, that's exactly That's how it right. works. Yeah, Internal
1: medicine, of course, includes cardiology, nephrology, which is study of the kidneys, gastrointestinal, endocrinology, rheumatology, Mm -hmm. uh, et cetera, et cetera. So there are a number of subspecialists. Mm -hmm. And each of the subspecialists practices uh, uh, internal medicine as part of their subspecialty. What's really important, I think, is that for the primary care physician, the internist, the internal medicine, the family physician, is to recognize, and I do this when I have patients with, say, rheumatologic problems that I don't deal with every day for me to get advice from a rheumatologist. Mm -hmm. Because that specialist can address that problem a little bit better, and then between the rheumatologist and myself, or the internist, or the family physician, you can coordinate the best, most efficient care to your patient.
0: I see. Uh, My mother is getting morphine. At this point, is morphine also uh, applied to people who are not in the final stages of their life when they have a lung condition?
1: Uh, yes, at times we use morphine. It's a still it's been around forever. It's a great. Drug when used it's properly, it's a relaxer,
0: right? A total relaxer for the lung tissue as well. I well,
1: what it does, uh, we because use
0: she it. was having, she was starting to have more coughing spells, and they mm-hmm. said we'll give you some extra morphine. I think she's getting ten milligrams twice a day now, mm-hmm. but it really has has reduced her coughing substantially.
1: Yes, it, it does suppress cough. It's a pain medication, of course, and it helps alleviate any. Uh, anxiety from uh, shortness of breath, Mm -hmm. and also direct pain from trauma, and things like that. We do use it in the intensive care unit quite a bit, and patients on Mm -hmm. breathing machines and so forth. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's it's a great drug if used properly.
0: You are working primarily with high altitude, but have you seen in your practice that there is an increase in younger people coming in, or is it uh, really pretty much across the board? Things haven't really changed so much for you in the last 30 years or so.
1: Well, the spectrum is probably the same, although as as, uh, a specialist and researcher in exercise and high-altitude physiology and and, uh, disease, I do see probably a a little bit more of a range of younger people.
0: Really?
1: By younger, I mean up into middle age and older. I mean, I have a, a patient here who's 65, who's healthy as can be, and wants advice on training. How to stay healthy. How to stay healthy. And yes. So I, I did a lot of that in Seattle and and so uh, I still see you know mid-teenagers all the way up to patients in the 90s, mm-hmm. in their 90s. Mm-hmm.
0: But have you seen an increase? One of the worries that we have is uh, teenagers today have more diabetes, more obesity, more bone loss. Do you see something similar with their lungs? Are they smoking more today or are they smoking
1: less? It, it's hard. To, I think they're depending on the region of the country. I think uh youth smoking is decreasing in some and increasing in others. I see. And then the so called metabolic syndrome, the obesity, I mean that's a, a big problem. Yeah. And I think in patients who have asthma who and young kids who have asthma and who are obese, it just compounds the problem. So I think yeah, I probably am seeing a few more of the younger younger mm-hmm. folks. Yeah, I'm just wondering. It's uh yeah.
0: it seems like uh, you know, with all the kids around of course the percentages go up. But I, I was just wondering, since some disorders seem to go more and more to younger people, uh, things that usually wouldn't happen until the middle age years are happening now in the younger generation, I was just wondering if you saw something like that as well.
1: Yeah. I mean, maybe a little bit more in, in lung disease, but not as much as, say, the cardiologist or the general internist or the family yeah. physician who's seeing more of the, uh, the, the overweight, hypertensive mm-hmm. young person yeah. or diabetic young person. Yeah.
0: Wow. It's, uh, I tell you, it's been, uh, I, I hope that you would like to come back and that we talk more about this because uh, we can talk maybe more specific about certain diseases, specific diseases. And i also like you to come back and indeed talk about some suggestions we have for exercisers, what they can do both in the winter and in the summer in order to get in the best shape they can be. I'd love to. That's an area that I'm
1: uh, very passionate about.
0: All right. Well, I really appreciate you came in today. And uh, folks, uh, Dr. Robert Cheney is available if you call the Boseman Deaconess Hospital Internal Medicine, and you can call him there at uh, 522-2400, 522-2400. Get acquainted with him. He's a very nice gentleman, and uh, he is a great asset to this community with all the knowledge that he has. We hope you enjoy the rest of your Sunday, and that we'll talk to you again. First, listen to Leslie when she's coming up, and then next week we'll be talking to Chris Bender. Have a great week and talk to you then. Bye-bye.